Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat & Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode... Strap yourselves in. This is an absolute corker of a chat. Uh, my guest is Simon Halfen, and over the next 50 minutes, you're going to hear some incredible stories of of the work that, that Simon's done for for the Style Council and Paul Weller. Um, and we talk about his his friendship with George Michael, uh, doing the you know the album artwork for Listen Without Prejudice. We we we, we go in on uh, you know the importance of you know, of, of of George Michael's music. And obviously we talk about the importance of of the Style Council and the jam and his work with Paul Weller. Uh, and that's amongst some incredible chats about all manner of great records. And uh, it was a real, real lovely insight, um, this this podcast. And I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Um, before we, we kick the chat off, um, just a quick thank you to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, thank you to 76 for producing this podcast. And and if you enjoy this chat, um, I'd, I'd definitely say at the end, then go and have a, a look in the archives because um, you'll get an opportunity to uh, go and have a rummage in those archives and uh, and listen to episodes from from some of the people that we discuss. Uh, you can listen to my, my recent chats with um, Mick Talbot of the Style Council, um, Mark Baxter, who worked on the the recent Style Council documentary as well, and you can you can hear my chats with artists as diverse as Chuck D, uh, Melanie C, uh, Maxine P, Commander Abington, Fatboy Slim. Uh, so go and have a a rummage in the archives when you finish this, and uh, and yeah, you'll have access to about two hundred chats with some incredible uh, creatives that have all got wonderful stories. Um, and if you want to support the podcast, that will be amazing. Uh, I have a Patreon page and you can support the podcast from about 87p a week, I think it is. And, uh, and you, I put up four shows each week over there, uh, video episodes and, and all sorts of content. So, um, yeah, if you'd like to support the podcast, that would be amazing. Um, as it's a labor of love and it's a, it's a, a lovely labor of love as well. And, uh, it means I get to have conversations like the one you're about to hear. Uh, so let's get on with it. Please enjoy Off The Beaten Track podcast with the wonderful Simon Halfen. It's Off The Beaten Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whippin. We are recording. Um, hello, Simon. How are you today? I am very good. Sun shining. Can't complain at all. 
Well, this will be an opportunity for you to complain. Um, so I'm going to ask you before we talk records to just look back upon the last sort of seven, eight months and tell me how you found it as uh, as both a, a human being uh, and a creative. <laughs> well, I've been called one of those before. Um, <laughs> um, as a human being... It's just sort of taking it one day at a time, I think pretty much like everyone else. And, you know, we've been very fortunate. We've, we're all well, thank God. And um, <clears throat> you know, I work from home anyway, so the day-to-day hasn't really changed dramatically for me. I mean, there's less meetings, obviously, and those meetings are now Zoom meetings, and which is absolutely fine. So, you know, I've got no <clears throat> no real reason to, com- to complain. Um, uh, it's, I try not to watch too much news because i think that's that sort of kind of gets you down a little bit um so just taking each day at a time so so far so good and creatively i sort of used the opportunity <clears throat> to do a book you know I, I, right at the beginning of uh lockdown i i decided to clear up all my clear out all my archives i, I, I knew i'd kept everything but it just wasn't particularly well organized and going through it all I realised that there was potential, and I got involved in a couple of um, Tim Burgess's Twitter listening parties uh, for the Style Council, um, <clears throat> the, the group that I worked with back in the eighties, and um, I had lots of ephemera and bits and pieces of record sleeves, and there was so much love uh, um, for that band, and that was a big chunk of my kind of growing up, I suppose, creatively. Um, and a couple of people said, oh, you must do a book, you must do a book. And, and that's kind of what inspired me. So I put it on Kickstarter thinking, well, let's see if there's any interest in it. It met its target within six hours, which was amazing. So, um, so excuse me. So I just, and so off at that point, once you've met your target, you kind of think, oh, well, I better do this now. And, yeah. um, and I think also when it's your own work, because the thing that I had done over, over those years, apart from just been a collection of my record sleeves, is that, you know, I've taken lots of photographs and lots of snaps, whether it's, you know, the Style Council or Paul or um, Oasis or George Michael or just just kind of people that I was around at the time. And, and this is sort of pre-mobile phones or sure. with cam- pre-mobile phones full stop, but for the most part, but it's certainly pre-phones with cameras. So kind of nice photos that pretty much hadn't been seen by anyone other than me and a few friends up until now. I just thought it was a good opportunity to kind of collate it all and put it into a really nice kind of lavish coffee table book, sort of LP size, which makes the best sense, I guess, because it's primarily about record sleeves and it's called cover to cover, you know, which is uh, sort of a no brainer in the title really, because, but it's all the stuff in between as well. So so, so for, for creative, in answer to your question, and I went around the houses there a little bit, very creative time because it is, it's given me a time to not only create a book, but also look back at, you know, four decades worth of work and, you know, and good times, you know, it was really, you know, real, and you kind of realise how lucky one has been to be in that position where you have been able to do a job that you love and, and it's not really a job, yeah. you know. So, um, um, yeah, so that, that, that's the answer to that question. Well, I guess um, we'll start the playlist now, which will involve a lot of looking back and good. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Times I hope. Uh, and for track one, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you, Simon, the track that you regard having the greatest ever intro, please. Well, it's, it's, it's slightly um, left of centre, and it's The Clash and Safe European Home. Oh, OK. Great. Yeah, and it's, for me, I mean, it's one of the best album openers there is, because it just kind of, within the first few seconds, it just says, here, here we are, and we mean business. And it really kicks off, and even now when I hear it, you know, 40 odd years on from its first release. Um, it just, you know, sets the tone for what is a great and slightly underrated album, I think, because I think uh, Give Them Enough Ropes sort of sat between the first, the debut album and London Calling. So it was kind of, I think it was at the time it was thought of as a sort of rock album. Well, gosh, it made a rock album. Yeah. Instance, well, they were a rock band, you know, no real surprises there. And, but it really sounded chunky and so i love that opening track and I, and I love the intro of that opening track because it really as i say it sets your stall out this is boom, we're here and this is the record would a clash an important band for you extremely important band for me um uh it was just they were just one of those bands where you you know there was i suppose there was the clash and the jam at that time for me and the Clash were one of those bands where you, when you went to see them, they had so much energy. That, you know, it was just—it's uh, difficult to explain. Um, and not only that, there was a sort of an energy in the audience as well. I think you were sort of—it was your age group; it was no one else. And so there was—you know—it could be kind of terrifying to a point as well because it was—you know—everyone was ready to pop in one degree. Or I remember going to see them up in Newcastle at the Newcastle Mayfair, which is sort of a slightly legendary gig for them. And it was very lively there. The crowd were very lively and, you know, they had to stop the show midway because it was all this spitting and gobbing and whatever else went on. It was quite hideous. But um, there was just something about that band. But for me, they, they were a very important band. And sort of career-wise, they, although I've never worked with The Clash, I'd uh, 
I got my first job uh, courtesy of Cosmo Vinyl. And Cosmo Vinyl was, for want of a better word, almost like the fifth member of the class. She was the aide-de-camp or whatever. This is kind of larger than my figure. I got to, I didn't know him, but I recognised him from Clash Gigs because he'd introduced the band or you'd see him around or you'd see his photos in Pearl. And what was, I'd left university after a brief stay shall we say just for a year and i knew i wanted to work in music and um in the summer before having left i bumped into cosmo in walking down oxford street you know he was it was a sunday afternoon he was bowling down and he was this kind of larger than life figure and i got chatting to him just as a kind of fan would and kind of left it at that but the his sort of passing bit of information to me that was that he was working out he was currently working out of stiff records and so when I got slung out of university, I thought, right, you know, I'm going to work in the record business, in the music business, and I'm, I know a guy, I'm well-connected, I know Cosmo. So uh, I took myself up to Stiff Records early one Monday morning, and at that time they were based above a cab rank in, off the Harrow Road. And Stiff Records was always a place for me. Um, I love Stiff Records because I used to go there on my way back from school, um, get badges and T-shirts, not T-shirts, badges and posters and, you know, all those sort of early records, you know, The Damned, but especially, you know, uh, Ian Jury and Elvis Costello. I loved those singles. And it just seemed like such a cool place anyway. So I went up to Stiff Records, um, asked if Cosmo was in, and they said, well, he doesn't come in every day and he certainly doesn't come in this early. And I said, would you mind if I wait? And they said, no, of course, I sat on one of the two chairs next to the switchboard, as it was back then. And um, about 45 minutes later, in bowls Cosmo. And he sort of looks at me, half recognising me. And I said, oh, hi. And he goes, oh, hi. And he says, oh, what are you doing? And I said, I'll come to see you. So he says, oh, all right then. So he sort of takes me into the, the sort of the post room, and which was kind of basically a sort of an indoor warehouse floor to ceiling full of records t-shirts posters badges everything um windowless and he said how can i help you and i said well um i want to come and work for you he goes well that's very nice but he says i'm not earning anything at the minute the clash aren't doing anything they're recording and he says, i'm I'm not earning and he says um hold on a minute and then so he, he he sort of popped out of the the um left me alone in the post room, came back about five minutes later and he said, do you want to work here? And I said, yeah, great. And that was it. And so I started there and then, and um, I kind of worked in the post room and, you know, so, you know, some small way, the clash was sort of part of my, um, you know, being a fan of the clash kind of got sure, me that sure. job in a way. And it was, it was nice actually, because, you know, Paul Simonon from the clash used to pop in because he was, um, very involved in with Mikey Dread, um, yeah. and Mikey's record, God rest his soul, was on released on Stiff. So he'd pop in every now and again, and he was just the coolest guy you ever saw. You know, he'd walk in wearing a Homburg and a Crombie and sort of motorcycle boots, and you just you know, it was just you know, if that's rock and roll, you had to put sort of point at rock and roll you know, in one figure walking in, it was him. Yeah. So, and Cosmo would come in every now and again, and he was just sort of like a bolt of lightning, such a great character. And those were good times. So, yeah, so the Clash were a sort of, uh, you know, an important part of my life back then. Wonderful. For track two, 
Uh, I'm going to ask you, Simon, what was the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please? Well, this is, a, I suppose, this is probably not an uncommon uh, uh, choice. Um, it's She Loves You by The Beatles. Brilliant. Because, yeah, I remember uh, hearing that before really knowing anything about anything. And I, I would have been oh, probably, what, three-ish, three years old, but certainly making a connection with that record um, it probably wouldn't have been a record. It would have been seeing them on, you know, some Sunday night at the London Palladium or some kind of show like that. But and hearing it on the radio endlessly, so that was a record that really um, stayed with me. And the first record that was bought for me by my grandparents was Beatles for Sale, um, and that was the, 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 the one and only record that I had for you know a good number of years, actually, probably till early mid seventies. So, um, so I played that one. So it was very, the grooves were very thin. Um, but no, that was a record that I think, I guess, as it did for a, a whole, the whole world really, it kind of jumped out and grabbed them. But as a kind of three year old, I certainly, you know, I remember being sucked in by that. And what, what, what emotion do you think that was that, 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 that you got from hearing that? Oh, well, I suppose it's the same as the, as I say, the rest of the world got at any, you know, any age. I mean, the, that was the kind of record that sort of the created Beatlemania, I suppose, in many ways. So I suppose, um, I guess it was the shaking of the heads and the, I won't attempt to sing it, but it's that kind <laughs> of shaking of the heads and the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that kind of, that kind of simple yet perfect. So I think at that you know, it's appealing to any age. So I think with that record, the kind of Beatles had the, the template Definitely. for what was going to be their, you know, enduring success. And a very sort of similar energy at that point to probably early Clash records and early jam records as well. It was just that, oh. that kind of, that, that, that teen spirit, isn't it? Just like Absolutely. bursting out. Yeah. Oh. And also when you see them on, you know, you'd see them on a grainy black and white TV show, just like, you know, even as a you know a toddler, you'd think, my God, who are these guys? Yeah. You know, and that you know that Beatles for Sale album cover, I'd put you know that, those Robert Freeman shots. You know, I poured over those for, still do. You know, that, that's that was sort of big influence on me. That that um, that look. Well, let's let's keep it back in the the, the, the formative years. And for uh, for track three, uh, the song reminds you of your time at school, please. Well, again, it's sort of going back to Stiff Records and um, you know, big records sort of going into the sixth form for me was, um, and that sort of, in a funny sort of way, it was perhaps an entree into the sort of world of punk and new wave was Ian Jury's Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. And um, again, it was all part of the Stiff Records thing where, you know, if, I've still got them somewhere, but you there were badges that said sex and or rock and roll and the injury and and it was just I don't know it's just that whole stiff records thing because it was kind of local ish to our school that everyone was kind of aware of it and it felt stiff records felt like a, a label that were on the side of the consumer yeah as a kid you felt they were your label it wasn't like a big major not that you knew what even knew the word major record label back then but they felt like they were your on your side. The, all the ads in the music papers were always sort of tongue in cheek or slightly funny. Or I remember even seeing the. This is before Elvis Presley passed away, 
I remember seeing all these, you know, these posters for the first Elvis album, the Elvis is King, Elvis is King, you know, it's just, just the sort of clever cleverness of it yeah. all. And, and it kind of, you kind of got it as a 16 year old. So um, that was a big record for me and opened the doors to that whole kind of stiff records world and the whole world of kind of, I suppose, you know, the punk and new wave really. Another big band at my school at that time was the Tom Robinson band. Yeah. And, um, that was another, they, they were another big band for me because they, they were a fantastic live band. And um, again, they made you feel part of their, you weren't a fan. You were sort of one of their, not mates. That's, uh, that's, because I didn't really know I met them, but I wouldn't say they were mates. But they made you feel part of them. They, you wasn't there was no us and them. I, I think that's 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 what every independent label surely wants to create that that kind of connection, you know, and to the point where whoever they sign, there's interest in that uh, that artist because of, of their, their their kind of stance as a label. I mean, you know, in, in later years, I, I got that from Creation Records. You know, right. it was like whoever they signed, I, I was interested. Yeah. And uh, because I thought, you know, and, and the same about speaking of Harrow Road, probably the same with Mute Records as well. Like, right. Uh, you know, yeah, I j- see j- that. I j- see just that. that kind of thing. And it's definitely something I think it felt like a bit of a tribe as an outsider looking at Stiff Records. Indeed, absolutely. I mean, how, how I mean, you, you also touched on, you said, if it, it, you know, it felt like they were, they were local. Where, where was home then? Where was growing up? I grew up in Swiss Cottage, but I go, I go to what's Ravenscourt Park, actually, which is one stop up from Hammersmith, to school every day. And Stiff Records, when I first went there, you know, I'd get off the Metropolitan Line at Royal Oak and walk up to their first offices, which were in, which is a shop front in Alexander Street. Yeah. So, um, and then when I went to work for them, they went on to their second, more office-like, above the cab, cab rank in um, Woodfield Road, which is just off the Harrow Road. What about school? Did you enjoy it? I think, yes. Yeah. I've got fond memories of school. I, mean, I think it was, you know, uh, it was an enjoyable time, I think, but not, I don't sit there waxing ly- lyrical, it was the golden age by any means, but it was a, it was a good experience. And, you know, you know, Latimer was and is a good school. Um, so, I, you know, but it was, you know, I think it was sort of the tail end of, you know, it was quite strict, you know, there was no, you know, woe betide you were sort of caught eating a bag of crisps even on the train to school in your school uniform or, sure. or, or that kind of business or running down the corridor by certain teachers that, you know, you were in trouble. So, but we had a laugh. It was a sort of an interesting, uh, yeah, it was good school. Yeah. Good time. Yeah. Was you a creative kid? Was I? No. You weren't? Not at all. No. What did you um, want to be with him when you was a kid? I, don't, I, I know I loved films. But not films like going to the cinema. Films like films, you know, old films on television. You know, I used to you know, religiously watch you know, Saturday Cinema as it was, then, which was the old sort of Hollywood musicals that were on every Saturday afternoon. And um, you know, we'd go to my grandparents for lunch. And <laughs> ironically, I only ever saw the first hour of most of those films because my grandfather would have a rest in the afternoon and nap in the afternoon and wake up at four o'clock to watch the wrestling. Yeah. So I'd watch yeah. the first hour. So. There's, it wasn't until later years that I caught up with the endings on many of those films. But that was, a, you know, that was kind of, a, I wouldn't even say that's creative, but that was my sort of my interest in, in that world. And, you know, I was fascinated by it, actually. So um, and I was very fortunate as a kid because my, 
late mother's um, sister was went to live in New York in okay, before I was born, so in sort of the late fifties, and she and her husband were entertainers in what's you know was no so I, uh, which was in upstate New York and um, sort of known as the Borscht Belt, so very Jewish um, hotels and entertainers. A lot of people kind of cut their teeth up there, you know, the Woody Allens and you know, Billy Crystal even did a film about it called Mr. Saturday Night, which was set up there. Even um, uh, Dirty Dancing is set in that world. You know, so that's that's that was in the Catskills. Um, so I was lucky to spend three summers up there when I, near very early seventies, that's seventy one, seventy two, seventy three. And I think sort of seeing that world, that sort of showbiz world, even though it was kind of running its course back then, it was still I don't know for some. I think in some way it kind of left its mark with me, thinking, oh, this is an exciting. This is an exciting world. Not that I was ever going to be a performer or anything like that, but just sort of seeing how it worked going to the shows with my aunt and uncle and my cousins and sort of having these magical summers as well, where it felt like you were going from kind of black and white to color from the UK to America. Then, you know, there were, you know, you were going, cars would have electric windows. There'd be a kitchen, uh, sorry, a, uh, people would have televisions in their kitchen and you'd be drinking orange juice out of a carton and pizza by the slice. It was, it was kind of like it was it was an exciting not our vision of America today, which is sort of yeah. that broken down machine um then it sort of had a sort of a shangri la quality to it, you know it was just like, wow, this is amazing television that ran through the night, you know and multiple channels and and then it just seemed very exciting, so I think that was kind of you know I think that was sort of an inspiration to me in a very subconscious way of how I like that world okay for track four I'm going to ask you about the first song that you remember buying from a record shop well again I mean it's it's sort of (laughs) I like many others you know it's it's a Beatles song and I remember uh buying Hey Jude when it came out and um and for me that's still you know if I had to pick one Beatles single you know it would be that as you know, such a great record is a perfect record, I think. And um, just remember at the time, just kind of, you know, falling in love with that record and um, being, you know, uh, given whatever it was, 10 Bob or whatever it was back then to choose whatever I wanted to buy. And that was it. Can you remember where you bought it? I, if memory serves me correctly, there was a, a record shop on the Edgware road uh, near where we lived at the time. We weren't living in Swiss cottage that, Oh no, we would have moved by then. So my memory of it was that it was in um, a record shop called Robinson's on the Edgeware Road, which may well have been the case, but that might just be time, you know, through the mist of time remembering that. And and for somebody who's been responsible for um, so many great um, pieces of work, how important have record shops been in your life? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, extremely uh, important, especially um, in the early days of Style Council, because the Style Council were very heavily, inf- the, sorry, the creative side of the Style Council was very heavily influenced by Blue Note re- uh, records. And this was a time before there were coffee table books to 
you know, flick through and say, oh, I like that, I like that. You yeah. kind of had to go, and this is before reissues as well, so you really had to find original um, releases. Um, and I remember at that time my brother was living in New York, and so I was fortunate enough to spend, you know, I'd go out there every Christmas, and the first thing I'd do was head down to the village and go from one record store to another and just swap stuff, you know, or buy stuff. And um, I remember, yeah, I remember... <laughs> Uh, coming back with, especially in the early days of the Style Council, coming back with sort of bagfuls of these fantastic uh, um, Blue Note records. So, um, yeah, no, that, that, that was a hugely important uh, factor, the records, because there was nowhere else to see these things. Um, so, and they, as I say, they, for me, not having any arts, had any art school background or this was kind of like my education in a way. It was just the way of learning the kind of what was out there and what the aesthetic of of that world was. And how did the relationship with the Style Council uh, come about? Um, Well, again, it was that, you know, we were just talking about that them and us aspect of bands and there wasn't a them and us with the jam or the clash. It's like very, you know, you felt you were part, all on the same side. And the, Jam were one of those bands that used to come back uh, into the the hall after the um, after they'd done their set. The house lights were on. You know, most of the people had left, but they'd come back and sign autographs. And I remember one night when I was at university, because I went to university in Durham, we'd gone to see the Jam in Bridlington, and um, must have been on the Setting Suns tour, I think. And so I got to know Paul that night because I think we ended up going back to their hotel and putting the world to rights as we thought to the wee small hours. And um, so I kind of met him and then I'd meet him a couple of times after I bumped into him or saw him at gigs or however, whatever it was, but each time he'd remember you, which was nice. You go, Oh, we were like, how are you? And you know, I'm seeing you since so-and-so or so. Um, and it, should, it shouldn't be understated just how much of a, you know, a, a, a huge pop star Paul Weller would have been at that point. Like, you know, the, yeah. the, the fact that these people are accessible is wonderful. He's the cheering of his generation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, without the bonnet. And, um, <laughs> so, um, but no, you're absolutely right, but very approachable. Um, um, and so, when I was working at Stiff Records, I kind of started off in the post room and then I got promoted to the to being a plugger, which I hated, uh, taking records around to uh, radio stations. And, you know, it just wasn't me. I, I just wasn't very good at it. And um, But I, through one connection or another, I got to know Paul again and got to hear, you know, where the jam were recording, for example, if you if they were recording at Air Studios, um, you, which was on Oxford Street at the time, you could just pop in there and be, oh my, oh, are you nice to see you? And I remember going in there and getting a, you know, an advanced copy of White Label of Town of Malice and just thinking, oh my god, look at this. you know, it's just it was so exciting. And so you always say, oh, what are you up to? What are you up to? And, and so when I started working in the art department at Stiff. Um, he 
Oh, and I, well, I, I remember he was going to do. Uh, this is interesting, actually. Now I've just remembered it. He uh, well, it's not maybe not be interesting, but I just remembered it. It's interesting that I remembered it rather than this. <laughs> is that he was about? He was talking about doing a record with Jenny from the Bell Stars, and the Bell Stars were signed to Stiff Records. Mm. So I thought, oh, I'll have a go at doing some little mock-ups for it, some roughs, and I did, and I sent them to to him at Nomis, which is where their offices were and where the jam rehearsed, which is a big rehearsal studio in uh, just behind Olympia in West London. And so I sent them down to him and we left them there one day and nothing ever came of it. The record never came, you know, they never made that record, but he then uh, rang me and said, Oh, I'm doing this small faces book. I'm publishing this small faces book through my own little publishing company, Riot Stories, would you like to design it? And it wasn't, you know, it's a very sort of flimsy sort of magazine-like thing. But I jumped at it and did it. And and it was after that that he announced that he was going to split the jam, which I think we knew about only beforehand. We sort of knew it was coming. And then he called me again. He said, listen, do you want to pop down to the studio? Uh, we'll have a chat with you. So I, and at that point, they had... Uh, I had just bought or was still working out of Solid Bond Studios, which was in Marble Arch. And so you know, I went down there a couple of days later on, a, I think it was a Friday morning, and he sort of stuck the kettle on and said, listen, milk, sugar, I'm doing this new band. Do you want to do the sleeves? So I said, yeah, I said yes to all three, you know, milk, sugar, and yes, I will, please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so yeah, I was absolutely thrilled by that. You know, Paul was, you know, in many ways – it was the clash and the jam for me, but if I had to sort of pick one at the time, it would have been the jam was sort of, because I think the jam were more accessible. The jam did that thing where they would tour every year and you kind of, you know, they were sort of like a local band in some respects, even though the clash were probably even more local to me, the clash seemed, almost seemed like they were a bit more global, mm. you know, having you know, played in the States and had success out there. And, you know, I, I don't know. So um, but anyway, to get that, offer from Paul was great and you know that whole experience with the Style Council was just a sort of magical one really it really fantastic time and you know they really made you feel like you were part of a little gang he and um, Mick and then Steve White came along and you know, it was Paolo Hewitt the journalist and we were a very tight-knit little group and all of a sudden I'm this guy that you know we're going out every night and it was you know it was just a great time and hanging out during the day at Solid Bond. And that became my, and we'd meet every morning for coffee outside Polydot, cappuccinos as they very quickly became <laughs> outside Polydor Records, which was just off Hanover Square in, in, in the West End. And it was just a good fun time. It really was. It was a fantastic opportunity. And it was, you know, they were great. And those sort of runner singles that the Style Council did, I think, you know, any band is, you know, I think they're getting reevaluated now, but I think any band that put out that run of singles, you know, six, seven singles in a row that were just like, wow, these are proper pop records, you know, yeah. great sounding, great attitude, great looking bands, you know, it was a good time. Absolutely. And, and, and that good time is, is absolutely captured beautifully in the, the, the recent documentary film. Um, that, uh, that's right yeah it's it's, it's absolutely i've watched it twice now and it's uh it's, it's a wonderful watch and uh really does as you were saying you know what it felt like at that point you know being involved in that and 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 them string of singles that are just so impressive it's 
captured perfectly, and it really does come across well in that in that recent documentary. Which and I does. think I think also in a funny sort of way, not making any comparisons other than the actual comparison of going from one group to another. It's almost like the style council was slightly overlooked because Paul had come from the jam and the way that wings were overlooked because, you know, McCartney had come from the Beatles and not overlooked, but they were never, but now when you look back, those singles and, you know, certainly album wise, our favorite shop is a, you know, such a corker of an album, but it was just a, it was the attitude and the sort of the, um, well, it was also not giving a, you know, a, if, you know, whatever. I'm not sure if you're allowed to swear or not. You can, yeah, but, you swear know, away, mate. Yeah, yeah not, not giving a fuck about anything. I'm just kind of thinking, right, I was tied down. I had so many limitations with the jam. I you know, a single album tour, that kind of thing, year in, year out. I'm just going to do what I want this time around. And that was Paul's. So we had fun with the sleeves. We had fun with the ads, the posters. Everything was different. You know, you did a 7-inch, that was different to the 12-inch. And then you did a poster that was different to the one that was on the streets. The one in the store in the stores was different. Every music paper had a different ad, so we just sort of had fun with it all, and it was sort of quite creative. It didn't always land, as you might say, but for the most part, it was just done with a good heart and good fun, and just sort of experimenting and just feeling that you were sort of part of that kind of. They were part of the eighties, but sort of they were right in the heart of the eighties, but in many ways they were on outside of it. That really comes across in the documentary as well. Yeah. Uh, when 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 you look at what was the the you know and and and, and I guess you you look at Live Aid as, as as an example of that as well like the kind of bands that were playing there and and yeah. it, it it didn't feel like the Style Council fitted in the same box as so many of them. No, that's true. Acts. Yeah, that's and, uh, true. and uh, but it still almost felt that it's very much of that time as well. It's, it's, I think I'm, not, I'm struggling to kind of explain this, but uh, do you kind of know where I'm going with it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, they did. You know, you know so I remember sitting watching um, Live Aid when it, no, like Band-Aid when it was on the news. Um, the Sunday, it was on the six o'clock news and there was that sort of picture of Paul walking down the road with his long coat hair slicked back and a cane and i'm just thinking and i remember thinking at the time when he showed all the other people i thought i remember thinking at the time i thought who the fuck's he gonna talk to <laughs> he ain't <laughs> hanging know. out with marilyn is he <laughs> oh well it's not other than that it's like he's coated everyone off at some point yeah that's the thing so, yeah. you know you know, you know they're, they're all in one room and paul you can go in that room over there. <laughs> oh <laughs> so, uh, brilliant well, for track five, uh, Simon, I'm going to ask you uh, the song that soundtrack your years club in, please. Well, you know, there's so many, so it would be sort of hard just to pick one. But it's funny, you know, talking about Paul and going out in those early years of the style count. So we would go out to clubs, and the, one of the clubs that we would go to was Legends. And I remember hearing um, David Bowie's Let's Dance. Um like through a prop, you know, I'd heard it obviously on the radio and had the record, but then you hear it through a sound system and you just, it was just like, wow, what a record, you know, it was, that was pretty, some, something pretty special. I remember those days, it wasn't even that busy. It was, I think it was a Thursday night we'd go to Legends. That was a sort of, I'm doing inverted commas here, the cool night. And it wasn't a particularly busy night and it was still a, kind of an old school nightclub um, with, 
sort of not with Saturday Night Fever coloured panels on the floor, but not far off that. Yeah. And um, but that re- that really sort of every time I hear that record on the radio now, or if I play it at home, I think back to that moment, thinking, God, that's a what a cork you know a great sounding record and obviously you'd hear it throughout that and that was my start of going out as well i wasn't yeah. that was really um when i started going out to clubs during the 80s and that, that would have been the, the very beginning of it back then so that was an important record and you know bowie, bowie's another one that's kind of an important sort of figure musically and someone that he's one of those guys it's funny that you've you're a huge fan of, but you don't realise that you're a huge fan of because he's just part of your fabric. Yeah. You know, it's not like, because uh, I'm just sort of remembering lots of different things and buying things and seeing things. And also I saw Bowie at that time as well at the, um, on the Serious Moonlight tour just after that. And, you know, that was great. But it's just, I even remember going to, there was a thing, it was announced that he was going to return to London at Victoria Station on a Saturday or Sunday, whenever it was at lunchtime. And, uh, I remember going down and not being able to see a thing. You know, it's just too many, you know, screaming girls there. But you just kind of think, God, yeah, I did that. And then I remember going to RCA and going up and getting a poster for Scary Monsters and all those things and buying um, um, Ashes to Ashes the second it came out and getting the, you know, the the insert with the stamps, stickers, whatever it was that came with it. And, yeah, it was just a you know, big sort of part of kind of – growing up was having Bowie as your soundtrack. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was, it was, it was nice to sort of link that up with this question. You know, yeah, definitely. Remember. And, and I, and I see something similar in, 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 in Paul Weller as well, in, insofar as the, these are artists that, you know, are ingrained in the fabric. And sometimes, you know, personally, like you might kind of just, if people ask you what your favorite artists are, you might not consider Bowie, you might not consider Paul Weller. Because you almost in some time sort of take it for granted because they're constantly there. And it's only when you take a step back and go, wow, they've actually soundtracked 30 years of my life. Exactly right, yeah. And and I find that really fascinating that, you know, the, 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 these bands can, you know, and, and, and you know, to, to, to look at Bowie as an example, you know, put out a lot of albums that aren't that great, like, but will constantly push the boundaries and reassess how he yeah. makes music. And, <laughs> and that's what makes you kind of love them even more. Yeah. No, I, 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 listen, I, I think there's a sh- very short list of those albums that aren't that great personally, but mm. I just, um, I don't know. He's just one of those guys. I mean, I had the good fortune of, of uh, meeting him when I was in, living in Los Angeles and, um, and actually having a meeting with him. It wasn't just like, Oh, shaking hands and, getting an autograph and um i was working for a design company out there who were doing the tin machine artwork <clears throat> and i had to show him that the, the the design company was based in new york but they had a small west coast office that i was kind of looking after and bowie was in los angeles for whatever reason at that time so i had to go and meet him uh, um at his hotel and he was just you know everything that you would absolutely hope someone would be, you know, he was charming and interested and he just sort of sat and had a chat with you. And, you know, it's kind of, I was at that stage. It was funny because it was at that tin machine stage. You kind of, I was excited to meet him and thrilled that he was so nice, but I didn't have that. I wasn't sort of 
bowled over with nerves. I guess maybe I was a, I was probably 30 at that point. So I wasn't kind of like jittery, stuttery with him. But he was, you know, so perfect, you know, his charm, his charm could be, and it sort of stayed with me and he sort of gave me a sort of a bit of advice, you know, having just moved out to LA at that time as an Anglophile. And it was just, yeah, I guess if that had happened maybe 10 years earlier, I would have been a stuttering, stumbling fool. But it was really nice to have had that experience. I'm just the one, one it was just the two of us in this room. And you know, I remember him getting up, hi, I'm David. And he was just like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't introduce myself, obviously, because he should have known who I was. <laughs> okay, for track six, I'm going to take you home. Um, and it's a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Well, this is sort of, uh, I don't know if it's home county or sort of, at the time he lived five minutes up the road. Um, so I'm going to say uh, Praying for Time by George Michael. And... For me, that I mean, I was fortunate enough to design the record sleeve for that and for Listen Without Prejudice. And Listen Without Prejudice is still one of my favourite things that I've done, you know, if I had to sort of pick one. And um, and he was, you know, he was just one of the good guys. God bless him, you know, very much missed, you know, proper friend. And um, I remember hearing that record, and I lived in, I had a flat in Swiss Cottage, and he lived literally you know what five minutes up the road in Hampstead at the time so that's why I'm and also I guess he's a North London boy at heart as well um but I remember when we heard that record for the first time I think I talked about this in the book actually but um you know we'd go out for dinner on reg, you know local dinners all the time and then go out to clubs every now and again and the, you know pretty much seemingly it was every night there'd be a whole kind of group of us there'd be George, his cousin, Karen and Sarah from Banana Rama and myself, and, and we'd kind of go out and squeeze into his car. And um, I remember on this one occasion, and there'd always be banter and people taking the piss out of each other, and, as you can imagine. And I remember on, on this one occasion, he said, oh, I've just come from the studio, do you want to hear this? And he pulls out his cassette and pops it in the, uh, in the cassette player in the car, and it was praying for time. And it was just like, you know, we were all in silence. Even afterwards, it was just like, fucking hell. And I can even remember where we were. We were sort of driving down uh, Hampstead High Street, you know, down the hill from the ponds going towards the West End, I think, at that point. And it was just like, wow, what a song, you know. what you know, And it really, to this day, 30 years later, still stands up. And I've got very fond memories of that time, anyway, because that's when I... I went out to Los Angeles with a view to find a job, which was sort of around about 30 years ago now. Um, that's when I went out there and got and, and started uh, living out there. But um, in the tail end of the summer, sort of September, October time, I went out to find a job. And I, the guy that helped me find the job was George's then manager, Rob Cahane. And um, George also came out at that time we were both staying at rob's house and uh we just had such a good time and just the two of us we'd kind of spend you know sort of go out for nice leisurely lunches sit by the pool you know just the stuff that california dreaming kind of stuff and it was you know really good time and for him his album and single were number one in the charts there and it was just like you know it was but it was a different time for him because he he I turned his back on any sort of publicity. He wasn't doing any publicity. His picture wasn't on the album cover. It was kind of his, as the record said, for 
to listen without prejudice. So it's his time to sort of say, listen, just let the music speak for itself. But it was a really good, you know, it's an important time for me, um, important time for that record, you know. So, I, I, you know, I look back on that, you know, with extreme fondness. And uh, um, it's just, you know, he was just, as I say, one of the good guys. And I think that record as well, Listen Without Prejudice, is, um, you know, kind of the most complete George Michael album in a way. It's, it's, um, it's got everything on it. I think it's quite... Uh, many ways it's autobiographical and i mean songs like freedom where he kind of really goes into detail about playing the fame game and then sort of turning his back on it and um i know it's just one it's a really beautiful record i think it's it's an incredible album and and and, and praying for time as a, as a single i think it's one of the greatest pop records ever made uh, i think lyrically it's it's spot on the yeah the the vocal delivery. I know there's the the first video was just the 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 the, the, the text, yeah. but there, there is that video of just him in the studio just singing it, and it's That's right, yeah, the South Bank show thing. Oh, yeah, beautiful, absolutely yeah. beautiful. And I, I, a little not long after George passed away, there was a, a, a documentary on on ITV. I don't know if you saw it, um, and uh, and they. I think it was Elton John and Liam Gallagher, and and they they, they put the needle on the record. Uh, That's, yeah, yeah. For for praying for time, and I I think it's it might be Liam that says it, or, or Elton John says it's it's almost Lennon. Yeah, it's, and, it's, it's and, Liam. Yeah, proper and, Lennon. Yeah. yeah, and it is, and I've never noticed it before, and I was like. Oh, no. God, it is. It's as grand and as beautiful as anything John Lennon's yeah, so done. The effect on his voice that he, he puts on that track is is quite uh, Lennon-esque. Yeah. Now, that struck me from the word go. You know, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, my God, this is proper, you know, this could be off Mind Games or something. Yeah. You know, it's got that, you know, it's got something there. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I mean, absolutely, yeah. No, so it's, it's an absolutely, absolute corker of, yeah. a, of a single. So, again, that's just, for me... It, you know, uh, it just underlines how fortunate I've been really in my career to sort of you know, spend time with these people and be, you know, in certain cases like with George, you know, be friends with and just have a small part in their story by having designed, you know, records. And with George, it was very much a collaboration. We did things together. So it was, you know, it was, uh, you know, he was very hands-on. I remember when we lived, because we lived, when I moved to Los Angeles, he also moved to Los Angeles, not for, <laughs> just by coincidence, because he'd met Anselmo. And um, so he moved out there pretty much straight after I did. And, you know, the two of us didn't really know anyone. So, we, you know, we'd see a lot of each other and he was still, you know, putting out singles and records at the time. And this is sort of the beginning of the um, computer sort of generation for designing you know before that it was sort of almost like dickensian victorian kind of artwork with overlays and markups and it was a kind of had to know how to mark boards up but this was the start of work being accepted on computers and i remember going to i used to go to a place i didn't know how to operate i used to go and sit with a guy like, like you would in a recording studio i guess a guy called ken and uh we'd sit there and do a few bits and pieces and, and I'd watch him learn the ropes. And, um, and it was just a little office on Melrose in, in West Hollywood, you know, a little studio there and there lots of little desks. And it was all very open plan. And I remember that George would just come in with me 
and sit with me with this guy when it was, and, you know, people's faces in the office would be like, what's he doing? You know, it's George Michael, what's he doing? You know, and, and it was like, well, you know, he was that hands-on and he, you know, and he was all, the thing about George was always very, you know, friendly to people and, you know, um, you know, his sort of public persona for the, being a pop star wasn't him at all. So, he, you know, he liked to laugh just as much as anyone else and was very self-deprecating. And uh, But it's just, I just remember those things where people just looking at him. People just walk past and see us three guys sitting there, me, came the operator. Oh, that's George Michael. You know, it's just one, one of the... <laughs> It's just funny memories to have. But no, he was just, as I yeah, I've said it, he's just one of the good guys. Wonderful. For your last track, a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear, please. Um, well, this is a... Again, this kind of harks back to my, my time in the Catskills in the early 70s. Because I, I remember seeing Cabaret uh, at the cinema... And it's Liza Minnelli's version of Liza Minnelli singing Maybe This Time, which was written by Kanda and Ebb, who wrote the music for Cabaret. But, but, but strangely, what's interesting about this, I mean, it's such a lovely song, but um, it wasn't written for Cabaret. It was written previously. It was one of those, um, Liza Minnelli had recorded it a couple of times in the early 60s. <clears throat> it's funny, in the first version of it that she did, in 1964, almost sounds, she sounds like her mum. So she, it's almost like she hadn't really quite found her own voice at yeah. that point. And then the version for Cabaret, which is such a beautiful version, um, is, you know, this is one of my favourites. And it's sort of a bit of a hidden classic in a way, I think. Um, and talking about the Catskills and my aunt being a, a singer in the Catskills, she sang it in her act. So I think that, it's the kind of memory of seeing the film and the memory of my aunt singing. So I, I kind of got to know that song and, you know, I still dig that record out and put it on every now and again, but it, I think it, I mean, I, I might be wrong. Maybe everyone knows it, but it seems a bit of a kind of a hidden classic for me. And um, yeah. So. Wonderful. Yeah, my choice. Well, we put together a Spotify playlist to accompany uh, this podcast. So I'm with all the tracks that uh, you've chosen and some of the others that we've, we've spoken about as well um as we uh, end a, a quite a strange year um what are you looking forward to uh personally in the new year and what have you got coming up professionally um well professionally the book's about to come out so that's um kind of a big deal um which i'm excited about um so um yeah so that that's that will hopefully keep me busy through the end of the year um I've got a few little projects that I'm working on. Um, you know, I kind of got involved in film and television uh, way back uh, when as well. And um, so there's a few little... In fact, I did a a, uh, a series I'd written, which I hadn't... You know, I'd never done that before, actually. But I wrote a series about an English band that goes to LA. Um, English band that can't sort of, for some reason, can't quite... They miss one boat after another, and it sort of mirrors uh, a story that I was not a story, uh, but, uh, an event that I was uh, involved in when I lived in LA. Was um, my 
friend, the same guy, Rob Kahane, who was managing George, wasn't managing George anymore. And he needed an act for this new label that he'd um, signed a deal for and um, didn't know where to look or what to, how to go about it and asked me for some help saying, you know, we could, you know, he was so far removed from the sort of cold face of looking for new acts. And I said, well, listen, I can ask around and I rang a friend of mine in London and um, he's sort of in, said, no, there's not much going on. Uh, um, but there's always Gavin and Gavin was someone that I'd known for years. And Gavin was going, I thought it was going to go this way. Yeah. And so um, I, came to London just but I happened to be in London by coincidence anyway just visiting my folks and I met with Dave Durrell who was managing Gavin at the time and his band Future Primitive as they were still called and he gave me a cassette of demos and I remember going back to my parents flat and sticking the cassette on and thinking bloody hell this is pretty good so I rang Rob up and I said listen I may have something for you and I sort of teased him a little bit about it and yeah wait till I get back you know and then I played him the cassette and Rob felt you know fell in love with it immediately everything that is apart from the name he said this have got to get rid of the name and so he signed them they became Bush and they sold 8 million copies of their first album alone just in the US and became this sort of monumental success. So many years later, I thought, oh, that'd be such a great premise for a kind of TV show. So I wrote it as a short form thing and we actually shot it and uh, Simon the Boo directed it and we did a good thing. And now we're kind of, uh, we did it for a French company, Canal Plus, but it didn't work out there. So they've given us the rights back to it, which is great. So we're sort of shopping that around now, hoping that there'll be a, nibbled for it but it's you know it's a cool it's a fun little program actually it's uh turned out good you know so quite considering i've never done it before i think it turned out very well so ironically (laughs) oh well i I look forward to hopefully seeing that then um okay well um someone's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um no this is mine honestly it's been i haven't on too much and where's the best place for people to buy a book um, through uh, nempera.com, which is emperor with an N at the front, N E M P E R O R.com. Yeah, it's uh, as I say, that we sh- they're arriving from Italy as we speak, so uh, I should have finished copies this time. It's a really lovely 12 inch square, you know, two hands, you know, you have to hold yeah. it. it's a big, uh, heavy book. So I, I've seen the printed pages, I'm just waiting to see the fully assembled bound book but i'm excited it's uh it's just a nice it's, it's funny when you um it's been reviewed in a couple of places very nicely already and one of the things that uh one of the magazines said was that it's because it's kind of feels like a personal journey and there's lots of little anecdotes and snaps and this that and the other that it takes it away from what could be a catalog it turns it into a book you know it really feels like a book so um it's just it's a personal sort of journey as well as, you know, a collection of, you know, sleeves and photos and whatever else. So, um, no, I'm very pleased with that. Wonderful. Well, when this uh, episode comes out, um, if you're happy to be tagged in it, I'll also put the uh, the, the uh, website oh, where people can, can go and purchase okay, it as thanks. well. Um, yeah. Simon, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. There you go. What a chat. I did not think it'd go there i did not think you know i'd hear that kind of insight into what it was like working with george michael and and the style council just absolutely amazing some beautiful chat there um one absolutely lovely gentleman um 
the book sounds absolutely incredible um so yeah go and uh, check that out and uh and yeah and as mentioned at the beginning why not go and have a rummage in the archives and uh go and dig into some uh other chats there's 200 or so there so go and go and have a rummage and you'll see loads of your favorite musicians djs actors producers uh, all having some some cracking chats uh, about their creative journey this far. I'm back next time. Um, thanks again for listening. If you see us on the socials, give us a like, love, share, retweet, because it all helps to uh, get the word out about Off The Beat and Track. And you can find out about anything else to do with this podcast at offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. I'm back next time. Thanks again. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So, if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk, official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, Stew Whipping. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.